Food for Thought on News Talk 760 WJR is presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state. Here's your host, Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening. Recently, CNN brought a food expert on camera to discuss the romaine lettuce recall and the dangers associated with the exposure of this food product and what it was bringing to the public. They brought a person who refers to herself as the food babe. She also writes a blog. Those were her credentials and qualifications. The interview was, as you might expect, a disaster. Wrong information, bad advice, with clearly no logical or scientific basis for her comments were the best parts of the segment. What do you see as the solution uh, in order to prevent the contamination in the first place? Well, one of the things that we have to just become in terms with here in America, we need to make sure that we get it from a source that we can trust. And the use of growth promoting antibiotics in our food supply, the the things that are given to livestock like chickens and cattle to make them fatter. And what's happening is, is the overuse of antibiotics is creating superbugs. We live in a day and a time where everyone with a laptop and who can write, even a little, are revered as experts in their chosen field. This isn't reality, and we have to be careful who we are giving the power to influence us. Why wouldn't CNN, a global news powerhouse, reach out to a bona fide expert like a scientist? If they can't find one on their own, they need to look no further than the host of Serving Up Science, an NPR podcast about where food comes from and how it impacts our health and planet, and they will find Cheryl Kirschenbaum. Additionally, Cheryl hosts the town hall meetings at Food at MSU. She is the executive director of the nonprofit called Science Debate an organization dedicated to elevating science and engineering policy issues in the national dialogue. But far more importantly, Cheryl has been a guest here on Food for Thought. Thankfully, Cheryl challenged CNN on Twitter, and they had quite the little spat. She is immensely qualified to offer insight into this and many other food topics that arise. If she doesn't feel somehow qualified, she certainly knows who does. Cheryl makes a point often on her show and on social media, and that point is this. Policymaking should be evidence-based. As sure as CNN blew it with having an unqualified expert, we as the electorate often make the same mistake. We elect our representatives on the basis of party affiliation or single issues that we care about when perhaps we should screen a bit more carefully. I wonder how many of our elected leaders would move to create policy based on evidence rather than on ideology. Policy based on science. That's our topic with our guest, Cheryl Kirschenbaum from Michigan State University. Jerry Brisson joins me with Cheryl in just a moment. You come back and be with us too. Get in touch with the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Visit fbcmich.org. 
Welcome back, everybody. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in the WJR studio, and our guest, as promised, Cheryl Kirschenbaum. Cheryl, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back. Well, it's our pleasure. And you're continuing to host the Hour Table discussion at Michigan State University, along with some of the um, Serving Up Science podcast that you're recording at WKAR. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah, we'll have an hour table coming up in January all about how to feed a growing population moving toward 10 billion people uh, with more limited resources on a changing planet. So the conversations continue. Wow, that is that's spectacular. So one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you is because I, you know, admire you at many different levels, but on Twitter, you got into a little bit of a spat and took on CNN. And I admire that at many different levels. But this particular case was really about something that we've talked about on the show before, and you and I have conversed about uh, privately, is, is really about policy-based or, or, or evidence-based policy. And, um, and CNN had an opportunity to do that, and to be candid, they just blew it. They did. And, you know, I don't like going after anyone. I don't think that um, blaming anyone for bad reporting is necessarily the way to have a better conversation. But sometimes conversations happen in the media, and it's such a visible space for us to learn from. And they really didn't go about it in what I think is a responsible way. So the short version is uh, we've all heard about the E. coli outbreak in romaine lettuce. It's a big story. 43 people, last time I checked, got sick in 12 different states, including here in Michigan. And CNN had a host there to talk about it, their anchor, Anna Cabrera. But instead of interviewing someone who had that expertise, they could have talked to someone from the the Center for Disease Control and Prevention um, or the Food and Drug Administration. They invited a popular blogger who goes by, and I'm not making this up, she goes by the name The Food Babe, to talk about how to avoid getting sick from romaine lettuce. And not surprisingly, she didn't get it right. Um, And that's a huge audience where she's telling people misinformation, but from a credible or seemingly credible place, like a major news network. So I think that's very problematic because it doesn't leave viewers a sense of what's really going on. It just sort of spouts misinformation. And the person that they chose to interview is notorious for telling stories that aren't real about science as it's related to food. You know, it's an interesting world we live in when we look at information in general and where we blur the lines between entertainment and news. Because people want entertainment, and there's a place for that. You know what? I'm not entirely against having a space for enjoyable news, right? It doesn't always have to be sobering. At the same time, if you're going to play that game, you really have to draw the lines in the right places, or else people could get sick. And in the food bank world... Food safety is our number one concern. It's the number one priority of everything we do because the last thing that vulnerable people need is to get sick from the food they're eating. Exactly, exactly, because it compounds the problem. And rather than be preventative, as often good eating can be, they get sicker and have a whole new set of issues and challenges to deal with. And for most people who get sick from foodborne um things they don't understand that that's what's happening 
They don't connect the dots between, oh, I ate something and now I don't feel good. So people often misdiagnose themselves when they get some kind of food poisoning, and that can delay treatment for sometimes a significant amount of time. Right. And in a case like E. coli, if you're not treating it the right way, you can wind up with things like kidney disease. So it's important to stay on top of what the real food science tells us and not perpetuate the mythology that maybe a blogger does who doesn't have the science to back it up. So, so do you feel like your concerns were heard and ultimately taken seriously? I mean, it's social media and Twitter, I think. <laughs> Uh, what is it? Just I, I don't exactly remember the number, but in terms of the audience on, on different social media platforms, Twitter is not by any stretch of the imagination the largest that people use. So uh, when I wrote about it, I just kind of said, hey, CNN, why not have a food expert on? Uh, it, it got circulated quite a bit. You know, it got like a thousand whatever likes or retweets or what have you. But that doesn't necessarily mean it went beyond the echo chamber of people who are already looking for this information happen to be on the platform. I mean, it certainly didn't reach your average television viewer that might have seen this blogger have the opportunity to have a platform for her opinion. Yeah, that, well, that, that's part of the issue is they, they missed the opportunity there. And I appreciate how you framed it. You did it much nicer than I did. But, you know, I, I do think that there's a responsibility that CNN has as this huge global network of news and information. And when we turn it on, we want to be able to trust that. So, but I think it leads us to, Cheryl, a, a much larger conversation. And we'd like to pursue that with you on the other side of the break here. And that is really about how do we create policy and can policy be evidence-based, scientific-based, and the need for us to put that as a high priority and value, even as we in the electorate are, are considering the candidates we want to vote for, and for those who are holding office, they are policymakers. So if, you, if you're willing, stay with us on the other side of the break. She's Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and she is the host at our table at MSU. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We'll all three be right back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight on WJR. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for listening. We're here on uh, Food for Thought. Jerry Basson, Dr. Phil Knight, and our guest, Cheryl Kirschenbaum. And Cheryl, Jerry has a question he can't wait to ask. I'm always like that, too. He just looks at me, and I, my eyes are just drilling into him, right? <laughs> so, uh, so here we go. I think I want to tie together this idea of evidence-based policy and what happened with the romaine lettuce. So tell us, if you can, just briefly, how do these contaminations happen and what should we be learning from this? Well, they can happen a lot of ways. So the big thing that Von, this woman's real name is Vani Hari, the big thing she got wrong is she described that, or she recommended that people buy whole heads of lettuce because she was very concerned that a bagged or boxed version uh, would have, I think she called it, too many touch points for contamination. And of course, contamination can happen during processing, but E. coli can contaminate lettuce in the field just as easily. So that's not going to keep people safe. And then she also started talking all about how 
we're using too many antibiotics that are causing superbugs that can't be treated. But this had nothing to do with the E. coli outbreak. And in fact, what they later found, or what they probably already knew at that point, was the strain of E. coli that was making people sick didn't appear to even be resistant to antibiotics. So she blew that one too. Um, but it could have been an opportunity to talk about food safety in terms of what we can do as consumers, uh, as far as washing things, as far as keeping the juices of meats not uh, not near each other as you're preparing foods. There's a whole bunch of recommendations you can do um, that would have been a really good uh, learning opportunity for audiences. And then on a policy level or even on a media level, I think this just one more space that we would have seen someone who really had the accurate information could have educated people, hmm, um, right. and we missed that opportunity. Yeah, it's, it, it was a swing and a miss for sure. And I, I really think that while that is a, a, a point in time and a, a moment, you know, stitched in time, as they say, uh, it highlights the much broader question about how does policy come about? And as Jerry said earlier, food safety is the highest priority, highest value that we have in the food banking world. In fact, it's one of the reasons that we even came into existence some 40 years ago. They wanted to have a spot, some a clearinghouse, so that they knew that the food that being distributed into the community was safe. And so that's a huge part of our work and reputation, if you will. But yet we have so many opportunities here that where we have policy based on th- things other than than good science or evidence-based data. And I think that's kind of the broader question. I want to get you two to talk about that for just a moment. Sure. Well, I will just say that I thought I understood how policies happened. Uh, one of my master's degrees is in policy. So I learned in a formal setting you know, how things move and make their way through Congress and get passed and turn into the legislation we have. But it wasn't until I started working on Capitol Hill that I noticed first that there were very few people with the kind of scientific expertise around like I had to help our elected leaders make good decisions about science. And I also noticed that there were tons of other people coming through all of the offices on Capitol Hill that made very strong cases, um, were funny, articulate, even might have a Ph.D. after their name, but weren't giving recommendations based on scientific principles. Uh, That really changed my own career trajectory because I feel like we need more people in the space between science, politics, and people if we're going to get laws in the books that keep us safe and keep us healthy. And for me, the intersection between what you just described and what food banks do is in order for us to move beyond Uh, providing food is a charitable activity, which it is, and it should be. Mm -hmm. But to move beyond that to where we can have evidence that shows the impact of providing food, and we really demonstrate that when you provide the service to people, it makes a difference not just for the person, but for the whole community. And, And really clearly demonstrating that with data is one of the most significant things and challenges that I think we're faced with. And it's right It's right to be faced with that challenge. It is well past time that we put together the actual body of knowledge that supports why this is important, while we still accept that 
caring for people and the moral imperative will always be there. I completely agree. I also would just add as well that I touched on this earlier, but we are having these big conversations at the state level, at the national level, all about health care and the best health policies. And what a lot of people don't realize is the connection between our food and our health long term. So if we're eating well, then maybe it's a bit preventative in terms of what's going to happen to us down the line. So while food and healthcare aren't always put in the same space in terms of policy discussions, I think with the right data, we'd be able to make some very positive changes. And develop a strong return on investment model in addition to the other data that we have for why food and health should be connected. Well, I think that what we're looking at in the Food Bank Council and our network here in Michigan is to say that And Jerry, you've said here on the show before that we're meeting about half the need. And that's not just the food bank network. That's everything. That's everybody who's involved. That's the federal government. That's state government. That's all the charities, everybody. We're meeting about half the need for food insecurity. Well, what we do know is that we can't scale charity to meet that other half, right? So we're going to have to find some place where this integrates into business and it becomes uh, a part of someone's business plan. And, and we like to say here on the show, we're trying to discover who wins when we win. Who wins when food security is created? And we know, and you mentioned one of those, Cheryl, that we know there are at least three segments of our workforce that win. And that's healthcare, as you mentioned, that's education, and that's workforce retention and development. And those are the areas that we're really trying to pursue to find the partners so that we can scale to meet the second half of the need. It's amazing that it's, it's half. That, that is just a startling, startling statistic. And we know the things that can help us to do so much better. So I really think that programs like yours are so important because they highlight these issues and maybe give us a little more incentive to be better actors and to make better choices that are good for business, but also really good for people and community. So I want to carry this conversation into something that I know you're working on that might be a threat to us. And that Uh-oh. is what what happens to the situation with food as our population continues to grow. And I know you've been working on that. And the truth of the matter is we do get asked that question periodically. You know, right now we can say that food is plentiful. But how long is that going to be true? And, and, And I know you're working on that threat. So I'm going to hold you two back just a little bit. Let us take a commercial break. We're going to come back. We'll pick that up on the other side. She's Cheryl Kirschenbaum. She's the host of Our Table at MSU. She's also the host of Serving Up Science on WKAR at MSU. You can find her at Twitter at at Cheryl underscore, that's S-H-E-R-I-L underscore, that's her Twitter handle. You can, you can follow her there. Jerry, you're on Twitter too. I'll get to that later. This is Dr. Phil Knight that you're listening to Food for Thought. You're listening to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight. Brought to you by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Welcome back, everyone. It's Food for Thought. Jerry Rasson, Dr. Phil Knight here, and our guest, Cheryl Kirschenbaum. And, okay, so 
quite the big topic that you teed up a few minutes ago. I mean, okay, we've, we've talked about everything else on this show, so let's do world hunger. <laughs> or food production anyway. Yeah, at least. Or at least, how are we going to feed everyone who's being born and we're living longer? I mean, maybe that's the cookies on the right shelf. Well, that's true. And by the way, there is a study out uh, that's just released here in Michigan, and that part of that study said this. And um, it's uh, disrupting disparities at um, our partners at over at AARP Michigan. And they said the person who's going to live 150 years has already been born. Talk about living longer. Yeah, right. Yeah, but the truth is none of us will know if that is true, right, by the time <laughs> by the time it's proven or not. <clears throat> and uh, half of us won't have the habits to propel us that far either. <laughs> That's a different issue. Well, I think this is such an important part of the conversation because up till now, yes, there are all kinds of reasons that people don't have enough to eat. But it's primarily distributional shortcomings and income inequality, um, different social situations. We have enough food for everyone. It doesn't reach everyone. But in the next 20, 30 years, that's not necessarily going to be the case. Because by 2050, between 9 billion and 10 billion people are going to be on this planet. And we have less land available. Uh, Climate change is making that Uh, happen even more so. Um, We're trying to be more conservative with our resources. We have to be more efficient, and yet there are more people. We know things are going to be warmer, hotter in some places. We'll see more flooding. We'll see more severe storms. All of those things impact and influence agriculture and food available. So what can we do? And there are real things we can do. So there are, there are things that kind of are, would be their own whole policy discussions um, mm-hmm. in addition to, <laughs> to this like, conversation kind of covering all of it. Uh, there are things like figuring out ways to produce food using less input, so less energy, less water. We have some of those technologies available. We can help uh, producers, uh, farmers, Adopt, adapt to those technologies and, and save more. But the big piece, the thing that I talk about a lot, I know I talked about it with both of you the last time you had me on, is reducing our food waste. Because mm-hmm. we waste about half of the food we grow in this country, which is alarming considering how many children, I mean, I think here in Michigan it's one out of five children are right. living in a food insecure situation. That is crazy because that food could be available. Uh, we're obviously not going to be able to conserve everything that we throw away, but we can do it kind of across scales, right? We can, we can help farmers reduce what they're losing out in the field. We can be more efficient with getting that food to the market. We can be better about sell-by dates and use-by dates, which are often completely arbitrary and cause supermarkets to just toss a lot of otherwise wonderful, perfectly fine food away. There's lots of places in that process where I think we can make great gains in terms of food availability. Plus, if we waste less food, again, that's going to mean we waste less water. That's going to mean we waste less energy. That's going to be better for the planet as well because we're producing fewer carbon emissions. So I think that's what I'd like to see us tackle politically as a nation and internationally first. How do you think people would respond to ideas like you're going to have to separate your food waste garbage and you're going to get charged for it? 
Well, nobody likes being charged for something. But I think on the flip side of that, we can also talk about the economic losses from food waste and change that conversation as well, right? I mean, by being more efficient in a, in a big picture way, uh, we could be saving money, which would then trickle down to consumers through prices. You know, it is a it is an interesting challenge, but I do think, you know, it one of the things that I can't remember who said this to me, but they said, you know, it's always easy to look back on prior generations and point out the things that they did wrong. Mm-hmm. The hard thing is to look at yourself and say, what is the next generation going to say I did wrong? Right? Oh, I do that all the time. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so, all I do. I look at my kids and I'm like, oh, what am I leaving behind for these guys? So are yeah. the history books going to say about us that we neglected to educate our children because we didn't nourish them while we threw away half of all the food we bought. Is that what the history books are going to say about us? Not a great legacy. Well, it probably depends who writes them, right? Uh, <laughs> That's an excellent point. <laughs> I think we, have ma- uh, we are continuing to make some pretty bad policy choices in terms of our long-term sustainability when it comes for what the world is going to look like that our children inherit, that our grandchildren see. Um, But on the flip side of that, there are some really exciting emerging opportunities, technologies, people out there trying to make a very concrete difference. And I think we're going to see some of that too. So I'm hoping when we look back, We'll say, yeah, this was a, or, I mean, an example I'll give is pulling out of the, the Paris Climate Accord. Um, probably not the best thing for international stability in terms of the health of the planet and the health of the people on that planet. Uh, but I think long term, we might just be okay, because I see so many great people out there in that space trying to do their best. There was just a report that came out in the last couple of days about how we're producing more CO2 carbon emissions than ever before at such a high rate. It's kind of beyond turning back. And, and that's often being described in this doomsday sense, right? In that, oh, my gosh, we missed the boat. We shouldn't right. be talking about the fact that we missed the boat. We should be talking about, all right, the world is changing. The world's always been changing. But what can we do to make it as uh, habitable and as pleasant here for as many people and other animals as possible? And, and there's so much that we can still do. And as a matter of fact, you just tweeted about that about an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness yes that's why it's on my mind but um but i think that's a really you know we always hear these people uh bemoaning the fact that gosh you know the world is coming to an end the world isn't coming to an end but the way it looks has everything to do with the choices that we make right now right and and you know i, I we sometimes have quoted president obama who's quoting president kennedy you know and that is simply that we are the solution we've been waiting on Mm-hmm. We don't need anybody else to come along and solve this. We have the ability to do that ourselves with the choices that we make. So why not us? Why not now? And I do truly, truly believe that the vast majority of us want to see people fed, want to see people educated, want to see democracy grow, want to see literacy increase, want to see these things. And these are trends that in many cases we're already on. Uh, and we just need to make sure that we have the policies to continue to support those things. And, and that, of course, is especially relevant to the conversation we're having today about the future of food. And my experience of people in talking to lots of different people about this quite often is their highest level of frustration is not knowing that what they're doing makes a difference. 
Mm-hmm. And that is so important. It's important to me. I don't want to be doing stuff that doesn't make a difference. And so this evidence-based policy program or way of thinking or way of imagining how you change the world, I think hits directly dead center in the area that people are most frustrated, which is we've spent a lot of money on these problems. They're still not solved, and people really feel hopeless. And I and I think your point about, no, if you only knew how much good is going on and the kinds of things that are happening, it would help you change your thinking about the hopelessness of the situation. And, of course, that's why we have this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we want to change the conversation, and, and Cheryl's helping us do that. It's important to tell those good stories. Absolutely. They don't always, they're not the clickbait. They don't always get all of the, the the tags and the whatever the millennials call it, the hashtag. I'm so, I'm so out of, um, out of the age of knowing all the lingo, but they're, they're not always the things that people click on, right? They're not as shocking if they're good stories, but they are out there. And I know those people, I know they're doing good work and I'm really encouraged and optimistic about where we're headed too. Well, we put pictures of Dr. Phil on all our stuff, and people always click on that. So we're we're very confident that we have our strategy figured out. Yeah, beauty and brains. So, wow. Hey, Cheryl, thanks for being with us again. Uh, Super to tell the story. Thanks for uh, standing up for what's good and best. And I love what you talked about, the the intersection of science, politics, and people. That's where we want to be. Now, thanks for being with us. She's Cheryl Kirschenbaum. She's the host at Our Table. She's also the host of Serving Up Science. You can find her on Twitter at at Cheryl underscore S-H-E-R-I-L underscore. Thanks for being our guest. And uh, look, we just got to make this kind of a regular thing. Would be great for me. I love talking to you anytime. Thanks, Cheryl. We'll be back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight, presented by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Once again, here's Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight, here to wrap up this edition of Food for Thought. That was Cheryl Kirschenbaum, our guest, Jerry, and wow. Yeah, she's great. I mean, again, I'm just amazed at how many smart people care about this issue and are making a difference and are working hard so that we can do better. I mean, I, I really like what she's doing, how she's doing it, and the level of intelligence that she puts to everything she does. It's, it's, she's amazing, and I'm glad she's our friend and doing a great job there at MSU and and uh, hosting the, the hour table discussions that's traveling around the state. And it's a pretty cool deal. I mean, it's a literal table that they carved out of a fallen tree from the MSU campus, and they're taking it around the state and having a town hall, and she's leading those discussions, and and uh, great to have her as our friend and um, and expert that we can call on here on Food for Thought. Yeah. So um, we've got thinking about um, the broader question that we talked with Cheryl about about uh, policy that is evidence based and how that affects us and how it should be created rather than from any other stance other than than a scientific or evidence-based data. Um, we, we've, we've seen a little bit of a hit that's gone on here during the, uh, for the food banks in the state of, when tax credits were taken away about eight years ago. But there is a bill that is before the House and uh, is moving uh, through the Senate. 
and we'll move to a floor vote fairly soon that would restore those tax credits on behalf of the food banks. And that's House Bill number 6433. So you did a little math figuring there, and I think it's, I think it's, indicates how good policy can affect our work. Well, you know, I, we talk a lot about ROI, so let's just really look at the return on investment on that tax credit. You've got, what the tax credit is, it's $100 for an individual, $200 for a married couple. And so it's a credit, which means if you if you give money to a food bank, you get $100 of that money back in a state tax credit, which means that $100 cost you nothing. Right. But what did it give? Well, it gave, on average, based on what food banks do for every dollar, 600 meals. And if it's a married couple, that's 1,200 meals, and it costs the consumer nothing. Now, does it cost the state something? Sure it does. But when you think about that $100 providing 600 meals or the $200 providing 1,200 meals, that's going right back into making people healthy, productive, and successful. It helps the state. It's good for the individuals. And it's a tremendous help to the food banks. As you said, Phil, only half the problem is solved. It is one of the least costly, most effective things we can do to drive success for our state. Well, and Treasury scored this bill, and it really costs the state. So when you look at the, the whole selection of bills, it's, 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 it's bills that affect um, food banks, homeless shelters, and community foundations. When they scored this bill, it was only going to cost the state around $17 million total for all three of those. So and now somebody says, hey, $17 million, that's a lot of money. Mm, not in perspective of the state budget. It's really not that much money. They're not going to miss it, but it's going to do so much good for our hungry neighbors and our communities and our education and our health care and for workforce retention. It's a win, 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 win. And it's how government and private nonprofits can work effectively together, right? It's a policy that puts the work where the work can be done cheapest and best, and it, the choice is up to the individual. So there, it's nothing anyone has to do. It's something that people can do. And if they do it, it makes a huge impact for the people in our state. So I know it's, it's a little bit of a selfish plug on the radio show today. But nonetheless, it's an important bill. We want to make sure people know about it and support it because it will make a tremendous difference in our goal to have a food-secure Michigan. Yeah, call, email send a carrier pigeon, whatever you got to do. It's House Bill 6433, and that would support and restore the tax credit for food banks that was taken away about eight years ago. So, Jerry, what's on tap for next week? You know, we're going to keep this conversation about evidence-based policy going pretty strong. We got the Emergency Food Assistance Program and some changes that we are hoping are going to come about there to make things better and our community stronger. We're going to talk about how tariffs has created an opportunity for food banks through trade mitigation food. I know, wow, that sounds that, really man, boring, that's, but that, it's That's very, really sexy, I'm it's telling riveting, you. It's riveting. It's <laughs> riveting. And then last, we're going to talk about ways we're working with the Michigan Department of Education with a couple school districts around how are we making food security more possible for kids in school. All very much evidence-based and all having absolutely to do with policy. Hey, I'm interested. I'll be here.
So it's great. So I guess it's time for a little food for thought. Some years ago, I was discussing with the policy director of a United States senator why I believe the senator should vote a certain way on a specific bill. I laid out my reasoning in a logical manner. I was sure to include the senator's own language and phrases as I framed my reasoning. The young man who had tremendous responsibility on the senator's staff and was under a great deal of stress because he was the one who would have to convince the senator to change his mind, looked up at me, interrupted me, and said, Stop, Phil! Don't confuse me with the facts! And therein lies the problem. Don't confuse me with the facts. The great American scientist Isaac Asimov said, There is a cult of ignorance in the United States, and there always has been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. I think we should scrutinize our policymakers at many levels, and one of those is, can they be moved to do what is right, best, and true when presented by solid evidence-based data? Can they cast off the shackles of dogma and move to create policy that systematically gives people a lift rather than adding to their load? Well, that's it for this week. Jerry and I are back next week with another edition of Food for Thought, the show that is changing the conversation about food insecurity across Michigan. Catch up on all of our shows at foodsecuremichigan.org. Follow Jerry and me on Twitter. And don't forget, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food for Thought has been a presentation of Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.